And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The presenting sponsor of The Audible is Trader Joe's. Inside Trader Joe's is a five-part podcast series that takes you literally inside Trader Joe's. Go inside the TJ's tasting panel, travel to wineries in Napa Valley, and around the world to discover the next great Trader Joe's products. Discover why they wear those super fashionable Hawaiian shirts. You'll find Inside Trader Joe's on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman on another lovely Monday morning. And Bruce, how was Austin this weekend? It was pretty fantastic, Stu. I got to admit, it was the most amped up I've ever seen in DKR Stadium. In a, you know, I've been going there for two decades, and I w- obviously I wasn't at the USC game the week before, but the, just the vibe around it was 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 great. I thought that. Texas really handled the situation well. And uh, also, by the way, for all the people who gave me a hard time about turkey burgers, our pregame meal for Fox Sports, we got a whole bunch of Franklin barbecue. And I have to admit, it exceeded the hype. I'm not even a, a, a beef rib guy. And I like pork ribs, but I thought the beef ribs were unreal. It just, uh, the only thing I worried about was eating a ton of food and then going down on the field for six hours and it being humid. Thankfully, the barbecue gods held off the humidity, and I didn't have like the meat sweats out there. Our friend Andy Staples wrote a pretty interesting story uh, Sunday about what you just kind of what you just mentioned. You know, the stadium, Texas's stadium, it's big, it's hundred thousand people, it's shiny, but it's not known for having the most hostile atmosphere. It's known as a uh, would you say wine and cheese kind of atmosphere, basically, and People, Crystal Conti, you know, came came over from TCU. He's the AD there now, and people have just really noticed how much more raucous the game day experience is. And Andy wrote a story for SI.com about all the various things Del Conti has done to uh, to to bring that about. But you're saying you really noticed it? I did, Stu. I mean, from before the game, like I, I mean, I do a, a hit right either right before the kickoff or right, right after from the field, and the the energy in that building was was certainly better than anything I've had this season, but it would rival any other place I've been in. It's sustained and it built going into the second half where you're sitting there, you know, coming off the coming out of the tunnel to start the third quarter. I'm walking with Tom Herman and, you know, we were talking about like what he told the team and it was, hey, we were in this very same situation last week against albeit a team that's not as good as this one, but if you know it's that message if we play our best, we will win this game. Our best is going to be good enough. And I'm sitting there as I'm like making my way back to my cameraman thinking, I'm curious how this, how this crowd is going to react if TCU takes over this game. And after TCU had a couple sacks and a couple of big plays, defensively, it never happened. I mean, just I, I thought, again, I don't want to, as I said in the column I did on The Athletic Sunday night, I don't want to push it too far to go Texas is back. But I do think it's interesting, the adjustments. And I want to just hit on this while we're talking Texas. Tom Herman was pretty frank with us on Friday in our meetings and then Saturday after the game a little bit where about how he has had to relate to this team. And even just, you know, I thought it was telling. They play Tulsa and they're rolling in the first half. And he's like, I'm trying to coach against complacency. So I'm ripping their butts. And afterwards all of a sudden he sees them struggle and this is kind of some of the issues texas has had where they have never or it's been a long time since they have handled any kind of success well and so he's like you friggin idiot what did you do you know saying to himself about like just kind of 
lighting them up as opposed to how you manage them. Because as he said, this Texas team is way different how you can motivate them and pull back the reins than what the Houston team he had, which had such a chip on its shoulder. And so I think we're seeing that now. I mean, they have K-State and then they have obviously the Red River game, which is big. But right now, Texas is a very, very interesting team for a lot of reasons on and off the field. Let me just, so as long as you're talking Texas, let me incorporate a question we got from John Polzer. Bruce, what is your opinion of the talent level and athletes at Texas after visiting this past weekend? There have been some reports that very few Texas players could start at TCU after seeing both teams on the field. What are your thoughts on that comment? I'm going to disagree with very few because, I mean, I, I was up close and saw that game. There's a bunch of guys, certainly on that Texas defense, for as good as TCU is, who would be starting. Gary Johnson would, would start somewhere at TCU. I mean, TCU has a lot of speed. He probably is even faster than any of their linebackers. I would think Chris Boyd might start anywhere in the country. He's as talented a cornerback as I think there is. Caden Stearns is an impressive young player. I don't know if he would be pick up Gary Patterson's system as fast. but Caden Stearns he, has been the real breakout player for Texas so far. I mean, this guy is only a true freshman, and he's already evoking comparisons to Earl Thomas, among others. Yeah, I don't know if he's quite the athlete Earl Thomas is, but he is, it's early. I mean, his instincts are really good. He's very smart. And Todd Orlando, this is in the column on our site, Todd Orlando kind of goes into detail about one of the other things that make him so so rare. It's just he said he's so conscientious. It's like it's like he's a junior right now. Defen- on defensive line, they have some pretty good players. Chris Nelson's a fifth-year senior. I mean, he was in Charlie Strong's first recruiting class of all things. He's playing well. I think when you look on offensively, TCU had to replace four, four O-line starters. I think there's a couple of guys on Texas's line Calvin Anderson's a good is a good left tackle I will say this I don't know if you know running backs wise TCU is better than Texas right now I think that between LJ Humphrey and Colin Johnson those guys would play for almost anybody I mean Colin Johnson's a freaky 6'6 220 pound guy who can make a lot of big plays downfield and LJ Humphrey's super smart and he's big he's 6'4 I don't know 215 220 so I disagree. I think there would be more than a handful of Texas players would be starting at TCU. I, I do think there's good talent. I think where they're not, there's not a wow factor. I don't think they have like a wow factor on the D-line at this point. I don't think they have that wow factor on the O-line. But again, they're, they're doing some of this now in the last couple of weeks. Zach Shackelford, their starting center, was the leader of that group. He's been out. And they slid Elijah Rodriguez from right tackle over. He's very smart and very versatile. He's played really well. And Sammy Cosme. There's a uh, redshirt freshman offensive lineman. He's played really well. So, again, I don't want to say they're back, but I think Texas will be a top, will be somewhere between 10 and 20 by the end of this year in those in the, in the uh, final rankings. Well, there you go, folks. The Athletic may not have a Texas beat writer yet, but you can't <laughs> tell me you didn't just get super-duper deep analysis of the Longhorns. Back to the podcast in a moment. Stu, you know what's not smart? What's that? Me not checking the weather forecast when I go on the road to some of these games and then getting stuck in lightning or rain or God knows what. Not smart. You relate to the stupidity? Yes, I'll tell you what else is not smart. Picking Ohio State to finish fourth in the Big Ten East with Dwayne Haskins as their quarterback. My bad. But you know what is smart, Bruce? Tell us. Going to ZipRecruiter.com slash TASB to hire the right person. ZipRecruiter does not depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply so you get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over a thousand reviews. And right now, Bruce, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive address, ziprecruiter.com slash TASB, the Audible Steward Bruce. That's ziprecruiter.com slash TASB to try it for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash TASB. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. While you were at that game, uh, I got to watch. I mean, really the most 
I think entertaining game ended up being Stanford, Oregon, which going into the weekend, I thought, oh, you know, poor ABC that that's their big primetime game because, you know, when you when it's a Pac-12 game and it's not USC, it doesn't tend to rate well uh, back east. And then it ends up being really entertaining game in which, which Oregon should have won. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> Just take a knee, run out the clock. You won that game. But uh, they fumbled. Stanford recovered. Stanford takes it to overtime and wins. And uh, I talked to I mean, Dewey's, take, I wouldn't they have had to, would, they probably would have had to punt with like the last 10 that, seconds. That, it would have had to punt in the last 10 seconds. And Mario Cristobal's explanation for it was that they didn't want to have to punt again. They didn't want to have to punt. They wanted to just get the first down, and they did. I mean, it was a crazy game in that Oregon was literally about to go up 31-7. to They had scored a touchdown, or so it seemed. But he's ruled out at the 1. And then Oregon goes backward, and then Joey Alfieri scoops, and, scoops the fumble and goes the other way. Suddenly it's 24-14. And really we saw, you know, Stanford now has to turn around and go to Notre Dame in one of the big games this weekend. And we saw a team that... Pretty fascinating. Talk about Stanford coming into the season. Everybody obviously would talk about Bryce Love first and foremost. They have really struggled to run the ball. They've had injuries on the offensive line. You know, he had one touchdown the other day, you know, like a 21-yard touchdown. But I looked it up. Stanford right now, 102nd in the country in rush. And yet they're 4-0 because they've got K.J. Costello, who you wrote about a couple weeks ago, who's really mm-hmm. developed. But also J.J. Arcega-Whiteside and then these tight ends. 6'5", six, 6'7", six, and they just, they it's like a volleyball offense. They just throw it up, and you're not going to be able to out-leap the guy for the for the ball. And that was the game-winning touchdown overtime was Colby Parkinson, the tight end, the 6'7", tight end, just tipping the ball to himself uh, over a defender. So what do you think? They're going to the Notre Dame now. Notre Dame uh, obviously made a big change at quarterback this week. Ian Book is now the guy. I thought Brian Kelly's explanation of why it took this long to do it was pretty interesting. I don't know if you saw that. They felt they needed Wimbush to, and his athleticism to beat Michigan, and then he just didn't play well the last couple of weeks, so they made the change. Um, I mean, what, look, I think, yeah. I think that was pretty succinct. I mean, look, you're going against the Don Brown defense. It was week one. I thought Wimbush played really well. I thought uh, – I thought they handled it well, and I give credit to Brian Kelly. I mean, look, we both picked, we, we both got that upset special wrong of uh, Wake Forest. Uh, very, Coach. very, very wrong. But very wrong. I feel like, like it one, shouldn't count if they change the quarterback without notice. Uh, well, one of the, the things the that I had pointed out in my in my picks column was that when Wimbush was decent in South Bend, when he gets away from South Bend, his TD and interception ratio goes goes haywire. And so I was like, all right, he's, you know, it's not a good Wake Forest defense, but he's going to go up against those guys. And then they switched to Ian Book, who actually played, I thought, pretty well. He's originally a Washington State commit. He was committed to the for a while. I thought he played well against LSU in the, in the bowl game, and that's a good LSU defense. And I thought, I don't know. I think people, I'll probably jinx Notre Dame this weekend because I've seen Stanford up close. I think Notre Dame is a, is a little better. Not a ton better because I think KJ Costello is the real deal, and I, I, those tight ends are great, and everything you said, I, you know, I agree with. And I also think Stanford secondary is good. I think Notre Dame. I'm trying to stop myself as I say this. I think Notre Dame is is a borderline top six team. If if Ian Book Ian Book gets settled in as a quarterback. Well, I was going to ask you because you know this is number seven versus number eight in the AP poll. So the winner of this game will be on a playoff contention shortlist going forward and do you feel like do you feel like that's what this kind of game this game is that you're watching two playoff contenders or are they two teams that are 4-0 and have you know just kind of risen this high by attrition if you will so i don't think that stanford usc not i don't think stanford is good enough in, on the defensive front to to be a playoff team i mean i watched a bunch of this game and Mario Cristobal's whole thing is, yeah, I know we've been Oregon's been a fast, innovative team. We're going to bully other people out here in the Pac-12, and they got a lot of young, massive offensive linemen, and they pretty much ran it down Stanford's throats. If you look at the rushing rushing edge, now I get it that Stanford was playing from behind, so that's going to skew them. But still, uh, one team outrushed them 178 to 71. So I, I I could see, you know, Bryce Love had one run of like 20 yards. And then just they were did very little. I don't think 
that Stanford is good enough up front to kind of hold up with the rest of it. I think the offense is really good. I think the secondary is really good. I think the linebackers are pretty good. I just think that's kind of the Achilles heel, and I think that's where it might catch them. But I think this is a hell of a game. And which do you, which team do you feel more confident in right now? I feel a little bit more confident in Notre Dame because I know they're really good on defense. And you know, the only reason I wasn't confident about Notre Dame earlier was because I didn't feel like Brandon Wimbush could take them to, to the promised land, if you will. He just wasn't a good enough passer. Now, I don't want to get just go too overboard on one uh, performance. I mean, he did win the bowl game, but one big performance for me in book against a defense that, by the way, they fired the Wake fired their defensive coordinator the next day. I guess they. Uh, I guess that was just unacceptable to give up fifty six. Notre Dame, by the way, hadn't scored more than twenty four points going back to last season. Hadn't scored more than twenty four points in their last seven games, and they scored fifty six the other day. But I think Stanford is is pretty good because of what I just said earlier. Like if they can get the offensive line back and healthy and cohesive, and suddenly Bryce Love is more like who he was last season, and you've got those receivers that are really tough to defend now, that offense is going to be really hard to stop but like you said I'm not as um, I'm not as bullish on their defense by the way Justin Herbert the other night was incredible he he only threw two incompletions in regulation in all of regulation now which I had me thinking of a game I believe you were there with me right the Aaron famous Rogers. Aaron Rodgers game where he against USC where he completed 23 straight passes Yep. I think you and I would agree that's the, I mean, I've said it, I think I've heard you say it, that's the the most on fire I think I've ever seen a quarterback in a game. Yeah, yeah, and that was, look, in fairness, Aaron Rodgers was doing that on the road against a much better team, USC, than what, look, I, I think Justin Herbert's awesome, but Aaron Rodgers was doing it against USC on the road. Justin against Herbert. Sean Cody and all that, yeah, I know, yeah. I know against a, you know, a national championship team. So I'm not saying it's as impressive an accomplishment, but what was, what was interesting is the parallel where, if you remember, after he completed the 23 straight passes, they ended up, USC ended up sealing the game by stopping him four times, uh, first and goal at the nine, and stopping him four times you know, in the, well, red, a little in the red zone. Ben, that don't, but don't break element there with that. Well, Aaron Rodgers... Wasn't like he; they were all deep passes, so there was some of that too. Well, it's just harder in the red zone, so sure. you know. Yeah, I guess I'm saying overtime is an interesting thing in college football. We saw this also in the in the um, epic Oklahoma Army game the other week, where the things that that worked for you in regulation and sometimes in some cases don't don't play into overtime. So Justin Herbert was having a lot of success downfield. And then you get into overtime, you're just throwing into the end zone, and Paulson Adebo, Stanford's really good cornerback, breaks up three straight passes. In the case, obviously, of Army, a much different situation. It's not like their defense was shutting down Kyler Murray. They just, with their own offense, with that amazing option offense that would hold the ball for 10 minutes at a time, just kept them off the field. And then you get into overtime, and you can't keep Oklahoma off the field. They get the ball, whether you like it or not. So I like college overtime. It's dramatic, but we have to admit that it's not, it's just not the same sport almost. Yeah. By the way, shout out to Army, though. I will give them credit for this on the other side of the ball. That's an explosive team. They only had two plays the whole day of 20 yards or longer. And that was that's as explosive an offense as any as anyone in college football. So I get it. They didn't have a lot of plays. But when they did have the ball, they didn't do anything. Their longest play was 33 yards. And I think that forced them to do some different things. And I don't want to get into you expensing uh, expensing a, a f- five minutes for fifty dollars. I don't know how that's gonna. <laughs> no, we can, but we can talk about how unusual it was to have this potentially epic upset brewing, and people are scrambling to find the game on TV, only to find out that it's on pay per view. In two thousand and eighteen, there are still, and it's in the Big Twelve college football games that are sold like a like a big boxing fight, uh, like on pay per view. So. I yes I once it got once so I'm relying on Jason Kersey's tweets from the stadium our Oklahoma writer and once they stopped them at the one they stopped uh, Oklahoma at the one early in the fourth quarter chance to go down and possibly win the game like I gotta see this I cover college football I've got to see this so yes I plunked it was DirecTV was was charging forty four ninety five I feel like they should have given some sort of discount for fourth quarter and overtime now I felt like an idiot because as it got later into the game. Max Olson and others from our site 
found streams of it. You know, let's, let's there was a guy on out. Twitch. I, I I know what Twitch is, but I've never been on it. Who was just broadcasting like him watching the game in his living room. Let's get this on the record still. Yeah. You're the boss. You've made this abundantly clear to everybody. Well, you um, keep talking about it at this point. If, if, you, you if make it abundantly clear more than I do. If your subordinates had decided, hey, we all would like to watch this game too and plunk down the forty nine ninety five for the you know for that game would you have approved the expenses i think it would depend on whoa, whoa, whoa. i think it would depend on what do, what do you mean well not everybody in the staff would be like does our virginia tech writer need to buy that does our tennessee writer need to buy that no but it was somebody who was writing about it absolutely Jeez. well i think we just lost andy bitter as an audible listener <laughs> I was just throwing out random examples. He had he had his own historic upset on his hands the other day. By the way, yeah, I wasn't trying to get lead you into transition, but uh, just one one last thing on the that Oregon Stanford game. Yeah, I would predict both quarterbacks in that game will, will end up as first round picks and high first wow. round. Wow, I mean, there's no question Herbert is already getting that kind of buzz. Costello is only entering his redshirt sophomore season. I you are the first person I've heard proclaim that about him. I feel strong on that. I'll 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 uh, be wrong if I was wrong, but I don't think I will be on that. So you mentioned briefly ODU and Virginia Tech. I got to admit, so a week ago we were or a week ago we were talking about how epically bad the Big Ten week was. To me, the Big Ten is a much better conference than what the ACC is at this point. Oh, the, the ACC, ACC up one up, two up them, three up them. I I go back to sitting on a plane on a Thursday night about ten days ago. And you were ready to shoehorn Steve Adazio's BC team into the playoff and how great this offense was. And then an, a winless Purdue team shuts them down completely. Yeah, whoops. That didn't go well. The mistake there than, was using Met and Wake Forest as any sort of measuring stick. For is that BC. more an indictment of the, of the ACC or you? The ACC is, is, is... It's interesting. ACC just two seasons ago was the best conference in college football that year. Clemson had a bunch of quarterbacks. Title. In the yeah, yeah, they had the best bowl record. They had the best non-conference right. They were the best conference in football that year. Now they may be the worst of the Power Five this year. And obviously, Florida State's implosion has a has a big uh, a big part in that. But you know, you look at it and you say, and by the way, Virginia Tech. Not that this excuses a, a loss to Old Dominion, but they had all these defensive. They had all this defensive attrition over the offseason, and there was concern. This would not be your typical Bud Foster defense. Then they shut down Florida State in the Labor Day game, and, and everybody was heaping praise on them. And it turns out that was probably more about how bad Florida State is. So after Clemson, I mean, I guess it's Miami, and then who? I don't know. You were saying it was clearly BC. They sure didn't look it. Now, here's what's, what's interesting. Well, you could be the third best team in the ACC and still be worse than Purdue. Well, here's the thing. So... Well, that would be that would be a reflection of how loaded the Big Ten is then, which we, we don't we're not buying. But I think the ACC is right now the worst conference in the, of the of the Big Five. I think they're even worse than the than the Pac-12. I think the Big Ten is better than better than both of them. I think the SEC is clearly number one this year. I know people won't like to hear that, but that's just a reality. We got to deal with that. But anyway, looking at the ACC. And this is a function of the first month of the season. They still have four teams that are undefeated. Clemson and Syracuse, who will play this weekend. Trevor Lawrence will, will make his first start. NC State is still undefeated. And Duke is still undefeated. They only have two teams in the conference that have losing records. North Carolina, which actually got their first win over Pittsburgh. And now they're 1-2. and two, And Georgia Tech, which is 1-3. and three. So I'm looking at this. You know, you see a lot of 2-2s two and twos in there and, and teams that haven't really played anybody. You see a lot of wins over FCS teams, for one thing. You do. You see a lot of you see a lot of you know loaded up bats bats off uh, in non conference scheduling. This doesn't get talked about much, but the Big Ten a few years ago basically banned FCS games, and you know they there were some that were had already been scheduled, and they didn't like make your team buy out of them. But at this point, I believe could be wrong. They have no FCS games this year. They certainly hadn't at the time that I was counting up records a week ago. So. I mean, look, if you're trying to compare those two, the thing about the Big Ten is, you know, they had all those embarrassing losses last weekend, but they still have Ohio State, Penn State, 
everybody wrote off Michigan after week one and they, they completely dominated Nebraska the other day. You know, I think we, you know, Wisconsin loses at home to BYU. Everybody wants, we're so, we're so overreactive from week to week. And I think by the time it gets to the end of the season, most of, I mean, sure, some of those teams will turn out to be complete disappointments, but most of them will probably still be top 15 type teams. Hey, I, I noticed something in your forward pass column this morning, and it's something I think there's some, some validity to. I would not be surprised if, if Louisville and Bobby Petrino isn't going to be a thing for that much longer. Yeah, like, you know, our friend Pete Thamel was the first to, to throw that out there in the preseason, and I remember it was it was kind of roundly dismissed. Like, come on, Bobby Petrino's not on the hot seat. This is a, they're off to just an absolutely miserable start. Yeah, they're they're look, they're really mediocre. I mean, they got destroyed by by Alabama. That's there's no shame in that. That's what happens to everybody now. But they barely beat Western Kentucky. They have a win over Indiana State's FCS, and then they got absolutely destroyed at UVA, twenty seven to three. Then there's a factor of hit the guy who stuck his neck out for him, Tom Jurich. He went down in flames for for a scandal there, and. You know, you wonder if again. I think this would be facilitated by if Purdue kind of got got some momentum now that they've coming off that win this past weekend over BC. If Jeff Brom and who could lead Purdue to six, you know, at least six wins, seven wins, eight wins, because we know he's a Louisville guy, and them look at it and go, you know what, we want to we want to bring this guy back because we know Bobby Petrino's best days are probably you know behind him as a coach now that Lamar Jackson's not there. I don't know. I could see that scenario play out. So I can't say this is completely shocking to me that this this is the trajectory that's taken place because I actually predicted it when he was hired. I went and I could not find the original Sports Illustrated article where I graded the hires that year. Here's my comment on Petrino. And I would admit this was too harsh in hindsight. Gave him a D. Four years from now, after the roster has deteriorated, as it always does, and Petrino has bolted for another job, as he always does, the program may be worse off than when it hired him. That's not going to be true because he produced a Heisman winner. You know, that's going to be one of the, always be one of the great moments for Louisville football. But this is what I'm getting at. If you look at his previous head coaching stops, the first time he was at Louisville, by the time it got to year five, he wasn't there anymore, but it was all the players he had recruited, and they, they, they went in the wrong direction. Arkansas, fifth year, he didn't make it to fit year five because of the motorcycle thing. They imploded. He's a great offensive coach. He's not a good recruiter. And so is it really all that surprising that maybe now that the last of the Charlie Strong recruits are gone, that Louisville is not what they were a couple of years ago? No, I think that's that, I think that's very accurate, to be honest. And I, I think that was a very prescient comment you had then. Wow, big word. Big word. He big also, word. I mean, and Pete brought this up in the column over the summer. He, his staff is questionable at best. It's he He has hired not only his son, who's the quarterback's coach, and I'm not going to knock him because he coached Lamar Jackson. He has two son-in-laws on the defensive staff. His defensive coordinator is Brian Van Gorder, who has been fired from more places than I can count at this point. It's not a good staff. And so for all these reasons, the Jurich one being a big one too, I think he, he needs to get turned around in a big way or he's in trouble. I totally agree. Dude, do you know that expression, brilliant minds think alike? Yes, what does it say about us that we both really were right on top of that Wake Forest upsetting Notre Dame prediction? You know, we both do our picks against the spread each week, and I really hope the gamblers among our audience are not actually using them and going and playing them because I don't want to. I don't want to feel responsible for anybody missing their mortgage payments or anything. But we do encourage you to go to betdsi.com. Betdsi.com has been paying winners for twenty years. They are top rated. On the betting review sites, use your sports knowledge to make some extra cash. Go online or use their easy-to-use mobile site. They have the fastest payouts in the industry. They offer options, betting options for everything, Bruce. You know that you can bet on not just football, but politics, reality TV, esports, virtually everything. I know you're a big esports guy. Oh yeah, I'm I'm all over it. You're so. gonna you're gonna put some money down on that. You can also try live betting at Bet. DSI, where you get to bet on every play, every drive, and every score until the final whistle blows. So here's our great promo. Use promo code AUDIBLE18 at BetDSI.com, and your first-time deposits will get a 100% bonus match on your money. 
up to $500. So once again, go to betdsi.com, use promo code AUDIBLE18, and get this limited time 100% bonus up to $500. It's only a game until you bet it at BetDSI. Can we just mention Old Dominion real quick? Because I think yeah, if, if any, I, we could wait till the shout-outs, but I did talk to Bobby Wilder, their coach, yesterday. Yeah, this, is a, sure. this, is, this was a, a very interesting story for a lot of reasons. First of all, as it got into the fourth quarter and people around the country are starting to tune into CBS Sports Network and seeing this game being played at Old Dominion's little stadium, they're going, what is Virginia Tech doing playing a road game at Old Dominion? Lord knows Tim Brando went on Twitter to, to make that. Yeah, he was, he was pretty harsh about it. Also, Timmy B, we love you, but uh, I don't think uh, this comment, this comment, Fox was promoting this comment on Twitter. I don't think that um, Shea Patterson's the most elusive Michigan quarterback since Chad Henney. You think Denard's a little, little more just, a, just, just a, just a little bit. Also, I don't know that Chad Henney was necessarily known for his fleet of foot. Okay, I'm not let you. I'm not going to let you crap on Tim any longer. All right, anyone's crapping on Tim, it's me, not used to. All Move right, on. all right, Move we on. we still love you, though, we, Tim. We love Tim. So I. Don't know why Virginia Tech's playing at Old Dominion off the top of my head, so I Google it. Not only are they playing there, they're going to play there six more times. It's a it, There's a couple-year break, and then they're going to go into a, basically a home-and-home, home, which uh, you are starting to see more teams of that level, like Miami playing at Toledo this year. They don't want to pay $1.5 million for a one-off home game against somebody like Old Dominion, so they're going to do more home-and-homes like this to offset the cost. But in this case... Old Dominion is on the other side of the state, basically, in a very fertile recruiting area, uh, the Hampton Roads area, and so it's just kind of smart for Virginia Tech to play a game there every other year. But, yeah, don't lose there. Don't but lose. don't lose there. I mean, Not, this is a team that, this is a team, and I, look, I like Bobby, Wild, Bobby Wilder, and I'm happy for him. This is a team that lost to Charlotte the week before. Oh, it's not even, that's not even the, the, the half of it. So Old Dominion, who, by the way, was a pretty good team just a couple years ago, won 10 games. 0-3 going into this game, lost their first their opener 41-19 to to Liberty. So when you talk about all-time big upsets, and, and according to ESPN, this was the biggest one you know, by their, their analytics. I know you're not a fan of ESPN's analytics, but uh, their yes, analytics a, yes. say this was the biggest upset of the last 14 years. This is an 0-3 team that had shown absolutely no, there was no, no possible reason to look at that and go, you know what, this has upset potential. They, the big thing they did was change quarterbacks on the second series. And this guy, LaRusa, comes in and throws for the most yards ever against a Bud Foster defense. They had these two big receivers. Bobby Wilder referred to them as NFL prospects. I don't, I don't know if they are, but you know, they were particularly impressive, who just kept torching Virginia Tech's corners, who, by the way, that's an area where they had lost at least one guy who was supposed to be a starter this year. So good plan, one of those perfect storm kind of nights. But yeah, I mean, you had asked me offline if I thought that was more surprising than Syracuse beating Clemson last year. And I would say, uh, yes, much, much more surprising. I mean, that was surprising, don't get me wrong. But there's a difference between one Power 5 team beating another and an 0-3 Conference USA team beating number 13 Virginia Tech. Okay. But that certainly did not help the ACC's cause. No, it did not. No, it did not. Hey, we got kind of a big game this week. We mentioned the uh, the, the Stanford-Notre Dame game, which is between two top 10 teams, but also two top 10 teams, Ohio State at Penn State. I'm so pumped for this game for so many reasons. But what By the way, what time is it, Sue? What time is that game? Yeah. It is at 7.30 Eastern, the exact same time as the Stanford-Notre Dame game. You know what else is right around that time? Um, Another top 25 matchup between... Uh, BYU at Washington, which is our game, which which selfishly means I will miss both of those games. Uh, sorry, my friends. Uh, you may be broadcasting that to Washington and BYU fans, and 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 pretty much that's about it. And by the way, that's a good game. Like that's a good game. I just for your sake, I wish it wasn't opposite the two games between top ten teams. So one of the reasons that this just immediately comes to mind is like this could be an awesome game is because of the recent games between these two. So 2014, and remember, it's James Franklin's first season. At that point, Penn State was still in sanctions mode. Ohio State goes to double overtime. Joey Bosa gets that sack to seal it. They go on to win the national championship. 2016 is the big upset for Penn State with the blocked field goal. 
that kind of causes the controversy that that engulfed the rest of that season about Penn State and Ohio State. And then last year in Columbus, I was there, 39-38. JT Barrett had that amazing second half comeback. There's a nice, I mean, I call it, it's not a rivalry like Ohio State-Michigan is a rivalry, but a nice intra-division rivalry going on there right now. You know what's crazy about that? I remember, this is back when I worked on the, the Joel Klatt Dr. Pepper show. That was a digital show. And I was with him and Matt Weiner. I remember going into that Ohio State game. There was a lot of momentum from like message board talk, but even I think made it into mainstream media about how hot James Franklin's seat was getting. Yep. And then like, so I don't know if anyone's working on this story, whether it's a feature for, you know, for, for a college game day or for some in, in, uh, industrious writer, but the, how much Penn state, the brand of Penn state football and James Franklin's own image has, has taken off since that game. The last time these two teams played in state college, it's pretty startling. I mean, now, look, I've got, you know, we've talked about this before about the job he did at Vandy, but just where people thought Penn State football was before this game kicked off two years ago and now is, is so different. And it's pretty remarkable just to see where it's at. I, I would love to watch this game. Just, you know, Trace McSorley is a Heisman candidate. I don't think he's in the top three right now. But to see what he and those big receivers can do, and and you know some good running backs, obviously not Saquon anymore, but uh, can do against a talented defense, even without Bosa, is telling. When I was uh, when I was around the the TCU staff, one of the things that came up a little bit was just like when they had Bosa, they didn't have to blitz at all. They could get home with four all the time, just because the other, you know, Bosa and the other the other three guys. We're just at a level above what normally you see in a defensive line. And now with it out there, not to say that, you know, the backup's not there, not to say that on the other side, Chase Young's not a elite talent, but it's a little different. And we'll see. I mean, TCU did put up over 500 yards offense on, on this team. So You're absolutely right, by the way, about the trajectory. So the first, if you remember, James Franklin's first two seasons at Penn State, they weren't particularly good. And for those of us on the outside, it was like, well, of course they weren't going to be particularly good. They were still dealing with massive uh, scholarship reductions and getting over that. But Penn State fans were pretty down on him and blamed him for the fact that Christian Hackenberg turned into a bust. Then year three kicks off, and they start 2-2. Two and two. They lose to Pitt, which is no good. They get crushed by Michigan. And I remember in the fifth game against Minnesota at home, they had to go to overtime to beat them. If they had lost that game, he would have definitely been on the hot seat. But they did not lose another game that year until the Rose Bowl. They, the Ohio State game really, in fact, I'm looking at this right now, they were not ranked going into that Ohio State game where they beat them. You know, it's really weird. They, they beat number two Ohio State at home that game. And all that did the next week was make them number 24. That That's, in hindsight, kind of weird. Anyway... Obviously, they've, they've taken off since then. So Trace McSorley and that offense are off to a great start. In fact, you're talking about the number one and two teams in the country in scoring offense, but arguably no quarterback or maybe just one quarterback in the country is off to a better start than Dwayne Haskins. And so you've been very down on Penn State's defense, their rebuilding defense. I've been skeptical on Penn State's defense. How about They that? did not get off to a great start against Illinois the other night before pulling away. I think... The question here is, are they going to be able to slow down this offense? You know, TCU certainly put up a fight, but they still ended up putting up pretty big numbers in that game. And TCU may well have a better defense than Penn State this year. Oh, I think TCU does have a better defense than Penn State. What I don't think TCU has better, and I, I like Sean Robinson, their, their young quarterback. I, even though he had some turnovers in Texas, I was very impressed by watching him, just how he manages his teammates and how poised and the cool a customer he is but he's not trace mcsorley and i think that he you know trace mcsorley presents all kinds of problems for people i also and think so, these these saturday night games at whiteout games at penn state yes. are as intimidating an atmosphere as you're going to find in the country that's that's i mean i didn't want to say it that way but that's where i was going that other game there was a lot of ohio state fans in jerry world this is going to be a different kind of animal for them. Now, look, Dwayne Haskins has a ton of talent, and he played in the big Michigan game. 
he didn't start it, but he, he was thrown in there. And there's no reason to think he won't respond well, but it is different, you know, to go in there to be the starter and, and get into that. So, I mean, I'd love to say I can't wait to see that game, but I'm going to have to wait to see it on, on, like, Monday when I come home, I guess. Do you, for a game like that, do you, yeah, do you DVR and watch it later? I do. I try to watch, try, like, I try to watch, uh, uh, when I get home, I will watch the open of our game, because I, obviously I don't see it, you know, because in the middle of it. And then over the course of the next, like, 24 or 36 hours, I will watch our whole game. And then I try to watch a couple of games during the week. Just and I already know what happened, but I want to at least, I mean, I want to at least get a feel for what's there just because it, it just helps. Yeah, for sure. So, you asked me an interesting question. Speaking of Dwayne Haskins, why don't you go ahead and ask the question? Yeah. Okay. You, you set it up. All right. So, Stu, since we're talking about Dwayne Haskins, and I think you made a veil, veiled reference to Tua Tagovailoa when you said almost nobody's playing better than him. And my Heisman, uh, my Heisman ballot, as it turned into on the athletic, was Tua and Haskins and Kyler Murray slash Will Greer. Actually, it was Will Greer this time. But if I were to say to you, you can have Tua, it's still September, you can have Tua and Dwayne Haskins or the rest of the field, who are you taking if you're a better for the Heisman? It's a, it's a fascinating question because if you're sitting here right now, you're going... I mean, with Tua, I just feel like he's he's just operating at a whole other level. He's barely had to play in the second half. He's got so many weapons around him. It's hard to see a scenario where he won't still be, if not the leader, one of the leaders by the end of the regular season. But as you know, there has been a long history of September Heisman winners. It's almost the kiss of death to be leading the Heisman at this point in the season. Saquon Barkley was... If you'd asked a year ago this same question and involved Saquon Barkley against the field, you would have taken Saquon Barkley. Absolutely. You would have done the same with Leonard Fournette the year he, I think 2015, was leading the Heisman race all the way up until he got shut down by Alabama. Uh, there's just a long history of these guys. So I'm going to take the field just because history has not been kind to the guys who are at the top of the list this early in the season. Somebody new, one of them will lose a game and everybody will jump off their bandwagon or somebody new will, will crash the party, but we'll see. Well, I'm going to take the two, the two marquee quarterbacks because I never learned my lesson, but that's, that's <laughs> it. I'm going to do that because I don't know. Look, Trace McSorley may throw for 405 yards and beat, beat Ohio State in overtime and springboard to the number one spot. I don't know, but um, I'm going to. I don't know. I just don't. I just don't see somebody else. I don't know. So you're, we're, you're going to say in late September, you don't see anybody else other than those two players winning the Heisman. I don't. The one guy, the, the two guys who I think would have the best chance to pop in there would be McSorley, and we're going to find. And I think his his window, big window, is right this weekend. And the other one is Will Greer, who I think is going to quietly put up huge numbers. And I think that at the end of the year, they're going to have this game where OU comes in there. And I think, I think West Virginia will beat them. So, but I just don't know. Like sometimes the Heisman, like guys stumble somewhere along the way. And they, I, I think Will Greer is going to need somebody to stumble. And they, they usually do. And I'm not saying he's going to be flawless for sure. But I, I just, uh, you know, I, don't, I just don't see like right now when you look at like the lead national leaders uh, running backs wise, you have, a guy at Memphis, you don't have like that. I think Jonathan Taylor, he may win a Heisman before he leaves there, but I don't think it's going to be this year. You know, I just, uh, I don't know. Well, to be clear, as of this moment, I find it hard to believe that it won't be one of those two guys, but I, I'm just, I think that's risky to make that presumption. There have been some exceptions. I feel like Lamar Jackson was winning the Heisman race by this point in uh, his Heisman season. Mario and, and went wire to wire. Mariota was probably like that. I mean, I was just thinking back to last year, even after Baker Mayfield uh, planted the flag at Ohio State in week two or three. But we had Saquon. You had Saquon. I don't, he wasn't winning it yet. So you know, It was a late rise. John Manziel. He just came pretty much out of nowhere. Did you just call him John? Yes. We're, we're going to shake it up for him since life in Canada has not gone quite as well as, as uh, we thought. It I mean, Andrew Luck was... You know, coasting seemed like he was coasting to the Heisman, 
And then our, he had the loss to Oregon and RG3 beat Oklahoma. I want to say this was early November of that year. RG3 wins the Heisman. So it's a, it's a, it's a, I know people don't particularly like when we talk about the Heisman on here that much, so we should probably change direction, but it tends to favor whoever is like last to the party, you know? So it may be the two, it goes wire to wire and, uh, and that's what it is. But if, if they were to slip up at the end of the season, the, the, the love would immediately turn to somebody else. Hey, by the way, just to follow up on something, remember we talked about Brock's back last week? Yes. Brock's back had a, I guess it's a good win. They beat Colorado State, which was a team that had beaten it as an SEC win this year. And they they went into CSU handily and won. They're three and up. All right. Is that your shout out, Brock's back? <laughs> it's not. It's not. But I did want to go come full circle on that. Let's get some mailbag questions. As always, Let's do shout-outs first, too. Let's do uh, shout-outs. Is that how we do I can't remember what order we do it in. Well, okay, go ahead. All right, my shout-out first. Mark Stoops, he's 4-0, and I watched a lot. I did not. I think Mississippi State's really good, and they kicked their ass. I mean, I just thought, you know, first they beat Florida, go in there, and that's a, ended that streak. I mean, I don't know if we're going to take them as a serious threat to Georgia in the uh, SEC East, but it's sure looking like they're the second best team in the SEC East. They got themselves a defense. It's a it's a legit, and, and they, they got themselves a real good running back. They got they already had the real good running back, yeah. and now they can actually play really good defense. I mean, they, they shut down Mississippi State, who came in averaging almost 600 yards. And I talked to Mark Stoops on Sunday. It's just a, a good veteran group he, he took he's felt like because Kentucky's not uh you know getting the same players recruiting wise as most of the SEC it just took a long time for them to to have that kind of defense that's talented experienced and deep it feels like he has that now I think that's a good shout out on your part what do you got my shout out is to Buffalo who went to Rutgers who may be the saddest program in the power five right now and didn't just beat a Big Ten team, destroyed a Big Ten team. Buffalo, it was a team that was already on my radar coming into the season because of their quarterback, who is a... Do you put him in the um, Justin Herbert, uh, KJ Costello realm yet? No, I don't, but he's he's a big dude, and he's got two really good receivers. We knew about Anthony Johnson, but it's more than that. I, I mean, look... You don't win six national titles somewhere else if you don't know how to coach, right? So, I mean, look, they've had a couple of – they have a nice test coming up too. They play Army, who just yep, gave yep. OU all they could handle. We're talking about all these other games. If that's on pay-per-view, Stu – You're buying? I'm buying, and you can stick it on my tab. Tyree Jackson is the Buffalo quarterback we're talking about, by the way, for those not familiar with him. You're talking about Lance Leopold, their coach, who – it, it, that's a pretty rare leap to make that he went from Division Three, not FCS, not Division Two, Division Three, to a MAC school, and he's turned them around. And they may be the best team in that conference this year. They might be. I mean, look, there's there's some interesting stuff going on in the MAC. We we love to talk about them, and always uh, always feels like there's a kind of a cult following for it. And there's and there's good coaching, and there's good football in it. As, get all, the mailbags, Stu. as always, you can send your emails to the audible pod at gmail.com. This first question comes from Daryl B. Harsh, and it uh, involves another embattled ACC coach. Guys, it's year four under Pat Narduzzi, and Pitt seems to be falling apart. He's given us a few huge wins along with a lot of bad losses. They probably won't be favored in any game the rest of the year. So look up their schedule. That seems hard to believe. Can he turn it around, or should Pitt move on again? It's going to be hard for Pitt to move on because their new AD gave them, I think, seven more years last year. I thought Pat was a good fit at Pittsburgh, just personality type and everything. I thought they would have been better. I don't know. I don't think you can. I, yeah, they got blown out by Penn State, and they certainly lost to a bad team last they year. They lost to a team that was playing as poorly as any team in the country, uh, any Power 5 team in the country going into it, North Carolina. Well, not Rutgers. Well, they're other than Rutgers. Yeah, other than Rutgers. So um, they have to go. And this week, ugh, do you know where Pitt plays this week? I do know. They play at UCF. Oh, that's going to be embarrassing. Mackenzie Milton is going to absolutely carve them up. You know what I do wonder a little bit? And I'll, I'm on the record. I'm a big Pat Narduzzi fan. I think Pat's... Pat's a, a, a good, an interesting character, and I think he's a really good defensive coach. 
And I am surprised that the defense has not been better. Yes, that is been, that's that's the been the big mystery. By the way, who put together this non-conference schedule for Pitt? This is this is murderous. Okay, it's they probably did probably the guy wants that hates with a passion. That's probably true. They opened with Albany, but then you know Penn State rivalry game at UCF, and in a couple of weeks at Notre Dame. Yeah, it's not good. Not good. They play Syracuse at home in between the UCF and Notre Dame games. They play Duke at home. Duke's playing very well at Virginia. Virginia Tech at home at Wake. At Miami. I mean, it, it is, it's not looking good in terms of, you know, last year they didn't make a bowl game, but they beat undefeated Miami the last week of the season and kind of gave you a little bit of optimism. I'm not liking their chances of getting to six wins. No, against that schedule? No, I'm not either. I don't know. I, I, I got to be honest. It's just like I thought they would have got, they would have been better than where they are right now. I don't think because of Pat's contract situation, I don't think they're, you know, even if he goes four and eight, I don't think they can fire him. Pitt has been such a revolving door of coaches since since they made the the you know horrendous mistake of firing our, our friend Dave Wanstead that at some point you got to just stick with somebody for a while. Well, yeah, you know what's made this job a lot harder, James Franklin. James Franklin is recruiting exceptionally well. You already got Urban Meyer not that far away. And I think that has impacted this program quite a bit. Absolutely. So. All right, Bruce. Yes, we are. People are already going in this direction after four games. I feel like it's the kiss of death, but let's bring it up. Matthew Ryan. Could this Alabama team be the best team of the 85 scholarship era, which began in 95? 2001 Miami had incredible talent, but Larry Coker as the coach. I, I think the potential is there. Like what you're seeing right now is the potential for an all-time great team, but it's a long season and uh, there are there are ebbs and flows. And also, you know, not like they've Louisville's turning out to be really bad. Um, I know A and M gave Clemson a scare, but it's different when when they had to go on the road. Like through four games, Alabama absolutely feels like one of those all-time greats, but. Uh, Weren't we saying that two years ago, too, the team that eventually lost to Clemson? Yes, and I don't, I mean, there. Are, I think this is probably the most talented offensive team Nick Saban's had. I don't know where it ranks defensively yet, and I do think it's so early where we don't know. Let's get through the playoff and see where this was going to rank. I just think it's way too soon because they're not going to get real tested by anybody really that good for a while. Yeah, I mean, look at their schedule. It's by the way, they are a fifty-five-zero point favorite this weekend over Louisiana Lafayette. They won't get tested until till November when it's LSU, uh, Mississippi State. Though I lost a little confidence in them this week, yeah. and obviously the Iron Bowl. And then I'm going to go out on a limb and assume if they make the SEC championship game. By the way, the only Georgia. game you know, are you look at how their schedule sets up road wise. So they play an Ole Miss team that I think people think is, you know, basically a, a fringe bowl team or kind of not a top 25 team. Uh, they went there. They go to Arkansas. Arkansas is horrific. Arkansas lost, is, is the only team that Colorado State has beaten, and Colorado State just lost to an FCS team. Uh, and Arkansas got beat by North Texas. Horrible Arkansas team. Then they go on the road to Tennessee. Tennessee just got smoked by Florida. They do have to go to LSU, but that's it. I mean, I'm not sure. It's You'd be hard-pressed, short of them trade, and they can't play Vandy in Tennessee as a West team. You couldn't. It, the schedule couldn't break any easier for them. Again, it's not nothing that Nick Saban or Greg Byrne, the AD, did there, but that's just how it's set up. And I'm saying all that to get to this, is... I don't, you know, when we're talking about the question that this is, I mean, I think Alabama is clearly the best team in the country. But before we get to where Alabama ranks all time, they're going to have to go through the playoff before we're going to have to get a feel for it. You know, I think certainly if they beat Georgia in the in the SEC title game, that would be a good step. But it's not like this schedule is is daunting by any stretch. So I'm looking through the questions, and Johnny Shee has been. I mean, I feel like he, it looks like he's asked 
almost half the questions that are in our inbox right now. So we are going to read one of his questions. He's we're trying to replace Jason Garluski as the mailbag fixture, but it also means that some other people need to be writing in. So the audiblepod at gmail.com. I know it's a little tricky because you know you want to you want to respond to the weekend. So probably Sunday is going to be your best day to, to write in. But um, all right, Johnny, let's pick one of your questions here. This is actually an interesting one. So you may have seen last week that one of Auburn's starting receivers is transferring. And it wasn't a coincidence that he did it the week of the fourth game of the season. They actually had three guys do that last week. So Johnny asks, hey guys, love the podcast. There's been news about multiple transfers out of Auburn tied to the new four-game redshirt rule new this year. My question is, who decides the redshirt? Did the starting receiver for Auburn transfer out now so that his new school gets to then put the redshirt on him once he arrives at that school? It was never clear who declares the red shirt. I assume from the action that it's the landing school that has that ability. I don't think anybody, I mean, I don't know how the administrative part of it goes, but do you, do you have to, I know you have to do that if it's a medical red shirt, but you have five years to play four. I don't think you have to like declare to the declare it. Yeah. No. I mean, what we're seeing now, even, even when we see something at Oklahoma state, there's news, Mark Cooper, who covers the team. Jalen McCluskey, who is one of their best offensive players, has decided to redshirt and transfer from Oklahoma State. Mike Gundy said McCluskey feels like he wasn't getting the ball enough. You're seeing that a little more. Now, I don't want to go too far into the what happened with Tennessee this weekend against Florida, where you're seeing where players definitely have more control in these situations than they ever did before. And this redshirt rule, I think, is, has, has, has hastened some of that. And I, you know, I, I can see why coaches can now start to be uncomfortable with something they may be unintended consequence that may, they're probably not thrilled about. Hey, they wanted this. <laughs> they, they pushed relentlessly for this rule that it may be turning into a new form of free agency. That one, by the way, though, Jalen McCluskey, that's a shocker. Like, in fact, I, I was just after you said that I was looking up some of the tweets about it and, um, Nathan Ruiz, who covers them for the uh, covers Oklahoma State for the Oklahoman, Jalen McCluskey is quietly a top ten receiver in Oklahoma State history. Sixth in receptions, ninth in touchdowns, and tenth in hundred yard games. So this is not some guy buried on the bench. This is one of their key receivers who just decided, you know what? After four games, I don't feel like I'm getting the ball enough, so I'm going to preserve this year and go elsewhere. Rough week in Stillwater. Get blown out by Texas Tech and then lose one of your best receivers. But yeah, I don't think they really looked at it this way. You know, this was a rule that the coaches wanted basically to be able to help with injuries. To, when you get late into the season, the, the, the textbook example is, is what, when um, Ole Miss had to play Shea Patterson when they burned his red shirt and played him as a freshman. You get late into the season, you feel like you don't have a choice, but now you've given up that this kid has to give up a whole year of eligibility to play a couple games. You know, they wanted to have a little bit more flexibility to be able to use guys as injury replacements. I don't remember anybody saying, well, this may become a situation where people, <laughs> players look around four games into the season and say, is this really where I want to be? No, no, I think not. We are actually tracking this at The Athletic. Max Olson is tracking it. Is now He says it's now up to a dozen, and that's just the ones we know about, up to a dozen kids who have bolted before they get past the fourth game. So... Sure, people can debate whether that's a good thing or not, but certainly, unlike some recent NCAA decisions, this one has definitely made is a definitely a very player friendly rule. And that's uh, you know what? Look, I think given the state of college athletics, I don't think more player friendly is a bad thing, and I think that's something that the the quote unquote kinder, gentler NCA probably needs to aspire to. <laughs> Just laughed out loud, Virginia. Virginia Tech sent out a press release that the Notre Dame game, that the TV time in the Notre Dame game won't be announced till Saturday, the October 6th one, and includes in the third paragraph uh, something that was clearly meant to be erased. The Hokies are coming off a XX-XX win at Old Dominion and resuming. Somebody had written this before the weekend and uh, assumed it would be a win and they just need to plug in the score. That's, that's funny. Okay, send your emails to the Audible pod at gmail.com and we'll see you next week if you haven't done so already please subscribe to the audible at apple Podcasts, google play 
Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. We'd like to thank our producer, Nick Fink, and we'd like to thank Kevin and the Octaves for our intro song, Dangerous. You can download their music on iTunes or Spotify. If you haven't subscribed to The Athletic yet, what are you waiting for? Read both myself and Bruce and all our other great writers there. Go to theathletic.com slash theaudible and get 25% off. You can also follow our coverage at The Athletic CFB. You can follow me at SL Mandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. We'll see you next time. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.